Good evening, everybody. We can find our seats. My name is Glenn Adams. I'm one of the elders here. We're going to, we've been talking a lot about Martin Luther and the Reformation. Tonight, we are going to back up 150 years and then go forward. Because although Martin Luther is uh, attributed with starting the Reformation when he put the 95 Theses on uh, the church door in Wittenberg, 500 years ago this October 31st, um, he actually wasn't the first one to start the Reformation. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, we just thank thee for this church and the 16 years that it has had the privilege of serving in this community, indeed, throughout the world. And we just appreciate the fact that we have freedom to come here and study um, your word, to study the history of the Reformation, and may we learn from it and understand how it affects us even today. And as is often said about history, if you don't learn from it, the mistakes, you repeat them. We think also of Pastor Aaron, who was at this moment on, just got on a plane flying back from Texas where he's been the last couple of days on church business. Keep him safe, Lord. And may we be guided tonight by the leading of the Holy Spirit. In the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. So seriously, I, I want to have uh, sort of a little review question quiz. So. The first one is when Luther was uh, hiding at Wartburg Castle, Aaron talked about that last week, in 1521, what was the name he went by? Okay. Junker George. And we all laughed. And George was J-O-R- G with the two German dots over the O. Now, believe it or not, that was not a derogatory term uh, because George, in English, is G-O-R-G-E, but Junker means knight. So he was actually taken to Warford Castle, a castle which had been built uh, about 1070, had been around 500 years, and had a lot of nobility associated with it. So they made him a knight there. They gave him nice clothing, they gave him a sword, and uh, even initially the ones in that castle didn't know that he was Martin Luther. Okay? Martin Luther's fame was well spread by then, but he was now in hiding. Okay. So, uh, you know, that's where within a year he had translated the New Testament in German, and he also published 183 papers called Treasus, and we're going to talk about those a little bit more tonight. Okay, second question is, where and when were Christ's disciples first called Christians? You got it? Antioch. Antioch. Yeah. We find that in Acts 11.26. They were first called Christians, or the disciples first called Christians at Antioch. Why did I ask that? Well, the next question is, 
when and where were believers first called Protestants or Protestants? That's what I thought. You know why you don't know? We haven't taught it yet. We're going to do it tonight. Okay. Uh, it was actually at the Diet of Spears in 1529. Last week, Aaron talked about the Diet of Augsburg. Um, and uh, so we have several of these diets. So what's the next question? What does the word diet mean? It simply meant assembly. So when you read in these history books, diet of this and diet of that, it's talking about official government assembly for some political reason. Okay. What is a pop, uh, papal bull? Yes. You know why it was called a bull? <laughs> they call it a bull because they put a lead seal on it called a bulla in Latin. So that's where the name came from. And uh, the next three questions to end our quiz are things you need to understand to understand the Reformation. And we have talked about these. What is purgatory? Oh, come on. How about somebody at the back? Yeah, hand went up. Yeah, basically, uh, it's the intermediate realm in which it is held that all those who die in God's grace, in other words, they're already saved, uh, but they're imperfectly purified. So you have to spend a time in penance. Um, that is actually in, uh, still in the Catholic catechisms. Uh, Aaron had a little book. I have a big one because I, I'm a little older and it's harder to read. But section uh, 1033 talks about that. And uh, next question then, what are indulgences? Yeah, yeah, you could uh, do different penances to reduce uh, either your time in purgatory or those who have died and reduce their time in purgatory. Now think about that. Whose time might you want reduced in purgatory? Well, your own, but outside of spouse. Your spouse, family members, your past parents, children who died. Remember Aaron was talking about the number of children that died? Okay. So to reduce that, so it was, and it's still entrenched in the Catholic doctrine today. The last one, what is transubstantiation? That's correct, yeah. Uh, and so the reason we need to understand that, it was one of the dividing factors, not just with the doctrine of the Catholic Church and Protestants, but between Protestants. And we're going to talk about that more tonight. The other dividing factor between Catholics and Protestants and the Protestants was that of baptism adult baptism. 
as opposed to infant baptism. And uh, um, it was pretty atrocious, some of the things that happened. Not just with the Catholics, what they did to people, but what Protestants did. We always hear about what the Catholics did to the Protestants, but we don't read and hear much about what Protestants did to other Protestants. So we're going to talk more about that tonight. So what I want to do, we've been talking Martin Luther. I want to go back 150 years and talk about a man named uh, John Wycliffe. You know, and uh, he was born around 1320. We, uh, we actually don't know his actual birth date, but uh, uh, we do know he died in 1384. And, you know, the thing is that returning to the scriptures did not start with Martin Luther. Um, and so we always know about Martin Luther and John Calvin but there's a lot of other names that we don't know so John Wycliffe was born in England in a well-off English family and he became a student of Oxford in 1360 eventually earned his doctorate there and became one of his leading professors He's really the forerunner of Martin Luther. Um, he'd been ordained after earning his Master's of Arts, and he attained the advantages of a position of a, a rectorship in Lincolnshire. Now, here's the interesting thing. He never went there. Remember, Aaron talked about these absentee pastors? Well, John Wycliffe was one of them, but it was... It was fully acceptable in those days, in that culture, that you'd be appointed to some church, they'd have to send their money to you, and you'd use it to support yourself while you went to school or something. Today we kind of go, hmm, that doesn't seem right, but it was perfectly acceptable. Okay? And so it meant that he didn't have to worry about finances during his academic studies. And during those, he became friends of... Uh, a man by the name of John of Gaunt. He was uh, actually the son of King Edward the, to the Third. The reason that's important is when Wycliffe started to bring out his Reformation ideas, that was, that was very, very uh, scary thing to do because you could be excommunicated and ultimately burned at the stake for it. So having the local political support behind you really did help. So at that time, the church had really become immensely wealthy. There's no other way of putting it. And in fact, they owned about a third of all the land in England. You know, uh, decades later, when Henry VIII uh, was having his big thing with the Pope because he wanted to uh, divorce uh, and remarry, um, he ultimately took the church over and um, he, he destroyed all kinds of Roman Catholic uh, uh, churches at that time. And those ruins are still found throughout England. Anyway, at that time, the church was very wealthy and uh, Wycliffe, he started to study the scriptures. And he came to the same conclusion that Martin Luther would 150 years later, that 
the scriptures were the only truth that we had about what God's will is. Not the Pope, not the priest, not the archbishops, only from scripture. But he didn't write about it initially, so he really didn't get in a lot of trouble. He did preach about it and teach about it. But there was one thing lacking at that time that was in existence when Martin Luther started spreading his word. We've mentioned this before. What is it? The printing press. Came about in Johannes Gutenberg in 1439. So we're back in, you know, 1370s. And so even though Wycliffe would do writings, they had to be hand copied. So they weren't spread too quickly. Uh, Gutenberg, the, anybody know what the first book he ever printed was? The Bible. That's right. Which one? Well, it's called the Gutenberg Bible, yeah. It was actually the Latin Vulgate. So it was a Bible in Latin, and it was the official Bible of the Roman Catholic Church, which uh, Jerome had put in, uh, translated into Latin uh, centuries before. In fact, for, for a thousand years, it was the official Bible of the Church. Anyway, in, in 1377, the Pope condemned 18 of Wycliffe's statements in a series of bulls. Now, we know what bulls are now, okay? And the English bishops tried to put them on trial, but the local government, particularly the Duke of Lancaster, a very powerful man, uh, protected them. And England really resented sending most, all the money to the Pope in Rome with absolutely no benefit. It's what we'd call uh, taxes without representation today. And uh, in 1838 to 1417, what is known as the Great Schism happened. And this is really what protected Wycliffe. There was a power struggle between who would be Pope. And they actually ended up having two Popes. One in France at Avignon, and one in Rome in Italy. And for 39 years, there was two, sometimes three Popes. So they weren't, the Pope wasn't no longer focused on Wycliffe. So he sort of got a free ride for a while because the power struggles were between the two and sometimes three popes. And they would excommunicate each other. They would have wars with each other. And if you were a parry supplying money to the pope, you were supplying it to two different popes. So your finances were even more drained. And the Catholic Church, even today, sees that as a blight on their past organization. Okay. But Wycliffe, was more or less on the sidelines because of that, because it's like everything else. You're the prime target until something more important takes over. That happens today, doesn't it, all the time in the news. Something can be sensational one day, and then something more sensational happens the next day, 
and what you're reading about suddenly is is gone. You know, we, we were all over the news about the hurricane that hit Texas, and then we had two or three of them come through the Bahamas, and uh, an earthquake hit Mexico. And who talks about Texas now? I, I haven't seen it in the news in weeks. You know, so that's human nature. Anyway, um, the argument in Rome was, and, and this is a point worth noting, that the Pope in Rome was the lineage of Peter. Peter was assigned as God's representative on earth. I mean, Christ had said on, this, on Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Rock meaning Peter. There's huge debates of what that actually means to the Roman Catholic Church means that God gave Peter and the succeeding popes the authority over the church to dictate what would be done. Uh, more modern views are that he was referring to the fact of Peter's recognition that Christ was God, the church would be built. Anyway, um, and also that Peter was crucified in Rome, probably under Nero, around 65 AD. And, he, and it's recorded that he, he demanded that he be crucified upside down because he felt in spirit, fear of the Lord. But what, what they, they'll say is, they argue because Peter was crucified, Christ was, he became replacement on earth. And so that, that becomes the basis of why the Pope in Rome became the powerful bishop. But Wycliffe came to believe that the Pope was the Antichrist, as did Luther 150 years later, because Christ alone is the head of the church, said Wycliffe, not the Pope. And he challenged these medieval beliefs and practices. And what were they? Well, they were indulgences, absolutions, pilgrimages, adoration of the saints, and so on. And uh, the other thing was he, this is kind of revolutionary, he strongly believed in predestination. Now, who's the other reformer that that became a big thing with? Yeah, John Calvin. The second, we're going to talk about him a little later, but the second man of the Reformation, and Martin Luther is the first, but John Wycliffe actually had another name. Uh, he's known as the Morning Star of the Reformation because he's the first one that the Reformation sort of, the stars appear in the morning. So just as that night is disappearing and the stars are, are there, was an indication of what was coming with the Reformation. So, um, eventually, um, things started catching up to him. Uh, interesting, too, and this is true of all the Reformers, you know, we, we can look back at 2,000 years of history, or 500 at this point, or I guess it'd be about 650, and look at the history. These, the theology of these men was developing. He never, ever 
lost his belief in purgatory, okay? or what's known as uh, extreme unction. What's the extreme unction? Former Catholics in here or Catholics? Last rites, yeah. yeah. We've all seen movies where the priest gives them the last rite. That's extreme unction. Okay? And, but he asserted the right of every believer to examine the Bible themselves. And what was the problem? Yeah, it was in Latin, and uh, only the really educated could read Latin. And also, if you could buy a Bible, they were extremely expensive because they were handwritten or hand-copied. Okay? So um, he also attacked, and this is kind of a big one, the traditional doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, in fact, in 1380, he published 12 arguments against the idea that the bread and wine was transferred into the physical body and blood of Christ. And uh, he basically said Christ is present in the element sacramentally, not materially. Now, there was a reason that he questioned the whole thing. You know, we always think that these doctrines have been in the Catholic Catechism since day one. They haven't. Anybody know when the doctrine of transubstantiation was entrenched into the Catholic Catechism? It was in 1215 AD. So, you know, a little over a hundred years before Wycliffe. And he would look at it and say, well, you know, how can we go 1200 years that this wasn't happening, and suddenly it is. So that was kind of the big things, and of course, they got him in trouble, and the belief in this doctrine was a biggie, uh, uh, being against transubstantiation. So in 1370, he wrote the truth of holy scriptures, um, and proclaiming that scriptures are true, free from error, and contradictions and that the Bible contained the whole revelation. And that's all that was needed. So the stage was set, set for them. And uh, the teaching supplied by the church traditions, the Pope and other sources are not needed is what he said. Well, in 1382, he was kind of silenced in Oxford. He couldn't go out publicly anymore and preach, but he had been successful in training a whole bunch of scholars that he taught to go out in the countryside and preach. And they are known as the Lollards. Or some history books will call them uh, mumblers. Uh, they mumbled about the gospel, and uh, they they spread the word. Okay. One of the things that he had done, though, was he had the Bible translated into English. Now, I've actually seen one of the pages and read it. <laughs> you, you, you cannot read fifteenth. 
hundreds English. It's really old English. But, um, and they, every copy would be hand copied, and they started to distribute these, okay? And there was no doubt that Wycliffe was going to be seized very soon. But what happened? He died a natural death. So he uh, escaped the penalty of Rome because they were so involved with the great schism that he, the Lord saved, spared him from it. And we're going to find a little later as we go through this, about 30 years after he died, he was declared a heretic. The Pope had his bones dug up, burned at the stake, and then scattered in the Thames. And there was a poem written of how it went down in different waters and went all over the world. So like his word with the Lollards, it spread throughout the world. So uh, I'm sure if you could look down from heaven and there's no scriptural, scriptural reason to think that we can, he would see them doing that and laughing. But uh, uh, nonetheless, um, you were buried in consecrated ground and if you were taken out of there, your salvation was gone. It's, so that's part of the reason they did it. Which brings us to Don, John Hughes. John Hughes um, lived, was born in 1369 in Bohemia. Anybody know what Bohemia is today? Come on, Justin, you know, you've been there with me. What? <laughs> What's ancient Bohemia today? Well, Czech Republic or former Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was split, uh, but it's the Czech Republic today. It's very significant to us because we have a, the Potmas or missionaries to Prague there. And uh, Justin back there and I have had the privilege of working in one of their English language camps there. But uh, he became a national reformer in Bohemia, which is now modern-day Czech Republic. And there was a connection with Wycliffe because in 1883, <coughs> King Richard II of England married Anne of Bohemia. She was the sister of the Bohemian king. So students of Oxford and Prague in, in the modern Czech Republic would go back and forth. And the Lollards, because Wycliffe was teaching at Oxford, his message got sent to Prague through students. And John Hughes was exposed to this, okay, because he studied at the University of Prague and became introduced with Wycliffe's teachings, Wycliffe's teachings and uh, he adopted Wycliffe's view that Christ, not the papacy, is the head of the church, as well as the criticisms of the abuses of the power of the papacy. So he had a lot of fiery sermons. Uh, he had been appointed pastor of the Bethlehem Chapel in Prague, 
which he was at from 1402 to 1414. Now, I don't expect you to remember all these dates. If you really want to learn them, you can read on your own. Okay, so I'm just trying to get the flow of this thing. So his preaching ended up him being excommunicated. Okay. By which pope? There was two of them. Okay. And the power struggle was continuing. Okay. So um, in 1412, Hughes had openly attacked the sale of indulgences for support of Pope John XXIII's financing of his campaign against Pope Gregory XII. And he wrote his famous On the Church then, and, you know, the Great Schism was going on. So you got one pope using indulgences to, read, to raise funds to fight the other one. So, uh, pretty archaic time. Life wasn't worth very much. And uh, anyway, um, he was called to what was known as the Council of Constant to uh, explain his views in 1378. And uh, he was assured safe passage by the emperor. Not the Pope, but the Emperor. So he went, and instead of being able to defend himself, he found that he was a victim of the Inquisition. And he was convicted of heresy, and he was burned at the stake. And So much for the guarantee of safe passage from the emperor. The pope overruled them. And we're going to see that becomes very significant because when Martin Luther is called to the Diet of Worms for the same thing, you know, uh, a few years later, he was guaranteed safe passage by the, by the uh, uh, emperor at that time. And Martin Luther actually studied the writings of both these men. So poor Martin Luther, when he's saying, I got safe passage, but boy, look what happened to John Hughes. Maybe I shouldn't go. So, in the old town square in Prague today, there's a statue of John Hughes. Justin took a picture of it. It's got a, a, a seagull on his head, I think it was. Is that right, Justin? And Prague is a very interesting city because Czechoslovakia, or the Republic of Czech, when World War II was about to happen, they had built all these bunkers and everything to defend Hitler's invasion. But then there was this deal in England with Chamberlain. They gave away Czechoslovakia. So the Germans came in and took the country over without a shot being fired. Now, the big thing, though, is all their cathedrals and castles and everything else that was destroyed all over the rest of Europe during World War II weren't touched. They're all there today. In fact, there are so many castles in the Czech Republic that they say if you visited one a day, you wouldn't see them all in a year. 
And uh, Justin and I have had the privilege of seeing some of them, and they are phenomenal, some of those cathedrals. And there's one there that was, what also happened during these times, the Black Plague came through and decimated the populations. There's actually uh, uh, an old church in, in Czech Republic that was made from all the bones of the people that died. And uh, remember that, Justin? Yeah. 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 It's kind of kind of gruesome, but it's a big tourist attraction today. So there's another interesting thing about John Hughes. His message was carried forward, and what is known as the Taborite group or the Bohemian Brethren. Um, about 1450, they formed the Moravian Church in Germany. It still exists today, by the way. Well, they were under persecution continually, too, and a bunch of them decided to come to North America. So they're all on this boat. A couple hundred years later, and this huge storm comes about. But there's somebody else on that boat. John Wesley. John Wesley, one of the great preachers of the Great Awakening in the U.S., raised under the Church of England, was not a saved man. Through the Moravians, he admired them because, why aren't they afraid? He was terrified he was going to lose his life. He came to the Lord through them. So, out of John Wesley, the whole Methodist Church, the United Church, exists today because of his founding. Traces all the way back to John Hughes. So you see the impact through these, these men. Okay? So it brings us to the age of the Reformation, uh, which starts with uh, Martin Luther and goes up to, they say, about uh, 1648. And uh, Protestantism was a modification of Catholicism as it had new ways in answering four questions that Martin Luther proposed. Who remembers what they were? Nancy, I know you know. You said them last week. What are they? Uh, well, my list says that. Um, salvation, how you're saved. Okay, what's the answer? Let's take them one at What's the answer? And then, do I have to do the answer too? Sure. Oh. How many want Nancy to do the answer too? <laughs> okay. You're saved um, uh, just by, by faith alone. Okay, yeah, through God's grace, by faith alone. Yeah. Um, number two was where does the authority lie? Um, people thought it was civilly, but it really only lies in the scripture. What is the church? Was it just the clergy and know the idea is that all believers form okay. the church. Very good. And number four, what was the core of living as a Christian? I don't have the answer. Okay. It would be that everybody has a purpose, that everybody's perfection, everybody's Yeah. <laughs> it's serving God in whatever capacity puts you in. Okay. If it's to be a preacher, be a good preacher. Okay. If it's to be a construction worker, be a good construction worker. If it's to teach in the front of the church when your pastor's away, do the best job you can. <laughs> I was to work out 
Yeah, Protestant work ethic. That's what it was. Yeah, and uh, that actually was uh, put forward more by John Kelvin, but they're all connected because these four basic questions are really core to the Protestant churches ever since. Okay, so let's go back and talk some more about Lark Martin Luther. You've had a lot of information about him, and I, I want to try and uh, uh, be a little more specific than what we look at. I mean, we, we could spend the entire six weeks just talking about Martin Luther and his writings. But I want to bring out some of the key things. Um, you may recall he was, he was a peasant. Uh, his father was actually a woodcutter, but he got into the mining business and, and probably became more what we call the middle class. But in that culture, you never really got ahead, you know. And uh, interesting article in the paper today about the, the middle class, uh, Andrew Coyle says, we got it pretty good today. But back, back then, you still didn't get to own your property in that, so. Uh, but he was able to uh, educate Martin Luther and his mother was something else she was a hard disciplinarian um, he he stole a walnut one day you know this little walnut to have a nut to eat and she caught him and it's recorded she beat him so bad that there was blood pouring out of him and and so when you think of how scared he was uh, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer and during that lightning storm he cried out to the saint of the miners to save him and to become a monk now how, how far along do you think he was in his understanding of true doctrine at that point not very far but he went into the monastery and really struggled mentally and did a lot of penance, including whipping himself. He would fast for four days straight, uh, read constantly. And so this, this thing that his mother instilled him about being scared of your eternal soul, where it was going, was so ingrained in him to begin to understand why. So much has been said about Luther to date in this course, and he is the recognized father of the Reformation. Um, so um, without spending a lot of time reviewing like we're doing, I wanna, I wanna bring out uh, what a couple things mean. His writings were and John Wycliffe's were what are known as treatises. Anybody know what a treatise is? We know it's a writing, but what's significant about them? Well, they're a formal and systematic written discord on some subject. Now, obviously, they were writing about theology. They're generally longer and in much greater depth than an essay would be. So they're very long documents, okay? And they're more concerned with investigating and exposing certain principles of the subject. So in other words, 
what Ruth Luther wrote and what got him in trouble. And uh, we know from his 95 Theses in the castle at Wittenberg that they were about indulgences. He had no intention at that time of, of destroying the, the Roman church. He just was tired of all the abuses and wanted moral corrections. And you remember Aaron talked about uh, John or Johann Tetzel. He was a Dominican monk uh, that had been uh, put as agent by Archbishop, Archbishop Albert to sell indulgences. And you know how you watch these uh, some of these late night shows and they're selling some product and the wonder drug or something and, and these televangelists so you know buy this prayer towel and, and these guys were that's what John Tetzel was like and half the money was going to be used by the Archbishop to pay for his appointment as Archbishop and Aaron talked about how they would buy the position the other half was going to Pope Leo the Tenth in Rome to build St. Peter's Cathedral, was, which was being built at that time. Now, Tetzel claimed that repentance was not necessary for the buyer and that indulgence gave complete forgiveness of sin. And believe it or not, they actually published, these were sins were past, present, and future. They published the list. Okay? Cheated on your wife, 65 shackles or whatever it was, you know. So you could pay your indulgence and go out and sin, you know. Or you could pay for past sins. Anyway, it was, it was a sham, like, unbelievable. It, uh, uh, these these uh, guys that sell snake poison, they had nothing on these guys. So Luther's response had been the 95 Thesis, and uh, he had very dutifully sent a copy to his bishop, and he didn't publish it. But guess what happened? His followers took it and had it published. They had it translated in German and spread it everywhere. That's why he got in trouble so quickly. And it's all because it was 70 years since Gutenberg had been built the printing press. It's like our social media today. When the printing press was introduced, communications were revolutionized. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking about this when and, and most of you have heard or know that uh, I was a civil engineer and working for consultants. Then I got into municipal government, and when I first started, we didn't have email, internet, phones, or at least mobile phones. Uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> yeah. Did I ever tell you about Alexander Graham Bell? He was a buddy of mine. <laughs> anyway, the fax machine was just coming in. So you get a letter of a complaint from somebody in the community. Well, you take a day or two researching it. You take another day getting it typed. I did love dictaphones. They had invented them by now, so I didn't have to do my own typing. You know, and, uh, I remember back in high school, Marilyn was taking a typing course in the summer. And she said, do you, do you want to take this? Ah, who wants to ever learn to type, you know? Yeah. So she 
for my first years in university, she typed all my papers. Now I'm pretty good at two-finger. Anyway, uh, this printing press really did revolutionize this. And uh, these, between 1518, 1520, Luther came to accept the idea of separation from the Roman system. And this was, of course, after the 95 Thesis. Tetzel's influence led to Luther being ordered to debate the issue um, before his Augustinian order in 1518, and that was the Diet of Augsburg that Aaron talked about last week. Okay? And uh, nothing really changed there, uh, but Luther was having a widening circle of influence. And 21-year-old Philip Melanchthon was under that influence. And the significance here is that later when Luther was hiding as an outlaw, he may have been the prophetic voice of the uh, Reformation, but Melanchthon became the theologian who with others loyally supported Luther's view. And when Luther did his first German Bible, the New Testament, and Longton actually, he, he went through it and edited it and had it published. So he's one of those people in the background of the Reformation. You know, think about all great men, there's always others in the background working for them. That's as true today as it was then. And uh, uh, these are the front men in the Reformation, but there was many, many other men and women in the background. So Luther, by the fall of 1518, was insisting that his only authority would be Scripture, not the Pope, and nor the Church. Okay? Wycliffe and Huss, uh, they didn't have the printing press, but Luther did. And so what I want to talk about, in 1520, after this Diet of Augsburg, where Luther had been ordered to recant, in 1518, what his reaction was. He produced three of his most powerful treatises. The first one, and they were all in, in 1520, the first one in August was the Address to the German Nobility. Every one of these were based on Scripture. Okay? Everything he put on them, he supported with Scripture. Just as John Calvin would uh, in the next generation with his institutes. But what the address to the German nobility, remember that Luther had great ties to the state and the, and the aristocrats, and uh, he presented to them through this work a strategy to reform the church. He recognized there was a power struggle between the secular government and the church. He called for a free council to implement these reforms. And in appealing to the secular rather than the clergy, um, he had an argument of why this was the proper order. And he goes all the way back to the Roman Emperor Constantine. 
Anybody know anything about Constantine? He's the first Christian emperor, or emperor of Rome. Yeah, it's first Christian emperor of Rome. He's the one that made Christianity... Yeah, the Church of the State. But he called a council, called the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Luther said this sets the precedent of why the secular rulers should be calling these councils to deal with church reforms. Now this was really a very daring move on his part because it could lead to excommunication. He hadn't been excommunicated at this point, uh, but he certainly was on the veg verge of it. And he called for restraints on the role of the papacy in directing the life of the church and reform of the serious moral abuses that were going on. So that was the first one, his appeal to the German nobility. The second one, came out in October of 1520, and it is known as the Babylonian Captivity of the Church. What's the significance of the word calling the Babylonian Captivity? I have to go back to Old Testament history so the, for this the one. The Israelites were in captivity in Babylon for 70 plus years? Yeah, yeah, they, they were under Nebuchadnezzar, the ones that uh, conquered and destroyed the temple in Jerusalem and carried the Israelites, uh, well, actually uh, Judah. Uh, Israel had been 120 years earlier carried off, carried off by the Assyrians. Uh, but the Babylonian captivity is where uh, men uh, like Daniel, you'll, you'll read about him in the lion's den, so he's referring to the Babylonian captivity. He's, he's alluding to the Pope of having captured the church as the Babylonians had captured the Israelites. So pretty strong allusion, okay? And so this, this treatise was more theological. And what he did is he addressed the sacraments. So, section 1210 talks about the sacraments in the Catholic Church. And it says, Christ instituted the sacraments of the new law. There are seven. How many do we have in the Protestant Church? Two. And, and they are? Yeah. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Although our view of baptism and the Lord's Supper are different than the, they are in the Catholic Church. But nonetheless, they were baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, the anointing of the six, holy orders, and matrimony. And it is believed that God or Christ instituted these. Okay. So there's an order of them, okay? And uh, the first three, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, are classified as what they call the sacraments of initiation. 
And they're further explained in the Catechism on sections 12, 13, 1285, and 1322, and others. But in baptism, people entered the Catholic Church, and if they weren't baptized, you were condemned to hell. So when are you baptized in the Catholic Church? Infant. If you're a parent and you have a new child, why would you want them to be baptized immediately? Yeah. Remember, it, it, in Luther's time, too, the number of children that died as infants, and that was, was huge. And uh, so there's a very strong incentive to get your children baptized early. And, uh, you know, the church and state, as we've learned, were intertwined. There was only one church, too. Okay. Today, we have a lot more one church. You know, interesting, I don't know how many get uh, faith today. Uh, it's a publication by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada, which we, we belong. But this month they have uh, an article, Does the Reformation Still Matter? And it gets into the sola scripture by scripture alone, sola gratia by grace alone, sola by faith alone of Martin Luther. But then he does a comparison of Martin Luther of Manuel Simons, who was an Anabaptist, who the Midnight Church comes from today in its various branches. I'm not going to talk too much about that tonight because I think Aaron probably wants to talk about that. Susie, why does he want to talk about that? He had a special interest in <laughs> Yeah. Susie is Mennonite background. Uh, there's another group, too, uh, that came out of the Man of Baptist. They're called the Pennsylvania Dutch, which is a slang of Pennsylvania Deutsch. They were actually German in Switzerland. I have a prime interest in that because Maryland's background is that. And uh, they ended up in Pennsylvania because of persecution. And then when the Revolutionary War happened, they were invited to Ontario as the United Empire Loyalists, and they all came into Waterloo and Newmarket area. And then, uh, to move forward in time, Marilyn met me, and now you know the rest of the story. So. <laughs> you know, your, your, your history, we all have connections. Catherine deals a lot with genealogy. If you want to learn how to find out about your genealogy, talk to Catherine. She'd love to. And uh, the way I found about that, which five years ago I was watching PBS, a thing on Genial, and here she came out and she was talking on the television. So, but uh, anyway, it's, uh, we can't hide what we do no matter what. My point was, he says in here, by some counts, the resulting Protestant movement has since produced, how many you think, how many denominations do you think? 500? A thousand? Ten thousand? Twenty thousand? It claims up to forty-five thousand denominations since Martin Luther. And there's only one back then. And they're all over a little disputes. We'll talk a little more about some of them. So he, in the Babylonian captivity, he addressed the 
uh, sacraments. And so in baptism, people entered the church, usually as a newborn. And through confirmation, you became personally responsible for your faith. Now that usually happened between the ages of 7 to 16, but commonly 14 years old in North America today. Which kind of means if you're baptized in the Catholic Church as a child, before your confirmation and you die, you're going to go to heaven. Okay? And whether children that die go to heaven or not, it's always a big debate in all Christian circles. Uh, No, you wouldn't, because the parents would have baptized them for... No, but if you become a Catholic as a grown-up... Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't get baptized. I don't know what's... Well, then they would be what Aaron calls bad Catholics because they weren't following the catechism and, and had no assurance of heaven under the catechism. So, Yes? Yeah, that, that's a good point, Denise. Uh, baptisms weren't by immersion. They're pouring or, or sprinkling. And even with the Anabaptists, they started by just buckets of water. Immersion came after. But, uh, and, you know, they're, they're not the same. Well, anyway, uh, the point was, it was it's part of the catechism. And uh, confirmation, you became responsible for faith. And the third one, the Holy Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper, one expresses unity with the church, including all its doctrines, laws, and practices. That usually starts about age seven. So that's what he was speaking against. Section 422 covers penances. And it's known as the sacraments of confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. The fifth one, anointing the six, is uh, in section 1499. Holy orders. What holy orders is? Anybody who knows what holy orders is? Yeah, it's the catechisms that uh, defines the church leadership, really. It's a simple way of putting it. So it priests, archbishops, and nuns, the whole gamut. And the last one, matrimony, uh, catechism, six, or section 16 and 1, is pretty straightforward. Um, and if you read it, you, as a Protestant, you probably wouldn't disagree with it. Because marriage is between, union between one man and one woman under God. So Luther declared in his treatise, um, at the beginning, that he accepted only three it is true. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, and penance. When you start looking at his background, you understand why he'd be very reluctant to think that penance wasn't required. Because his whole life, he he very penitent in all the things that he did. Uh, but he, by the end of it, it, it kind of looked like he wasn't endorsing it. So, with respect to the Eucharist, 
He suggested the papacy placed three great shackles on this sacrament. The first, uh, they were giving only bread during communion, not the wine. I think the question last week was, why didn't they give wine? And there was practical reasons for it. Uh, it could be spilled and be spilling God, Christ's blood. So that, that was pretty entrenched by the church. But it's not entrenched that way in Scripture, so he questioned it. The second was the doctrine of transubstantiation, binding the church to believe that the bread and wine was completely replaced on the altar by the body and blood of Christ by the priest at the Mass. It had been Wycliffe's complaint as well, and it had been entrenched in 1215. Uh, but the interesting thing is, if you read history books about Martin Luther, they will say that he still believed in transubstantiation. It's kind of a half-truth. Uh, Aaron was explaining last week that he believed in what's called consubstantiation, and that they both coexisted, the bread and wine and Christ's body and, and blood. So, nonetheless, he had very strong views on this. Okay? And the third uh, was probably the strongest, that the doctrine of the Eucharist is the sacrifice which held that the priest offered Christ as a propitiation to the Father on the altar, um, vehemently opposed because there was no need to re-sacrifice Christ. He died on the cross once and for all, for all that will believe that he is the Son of God and that he paid the price for your sins. The other very important thing that we touched on, he, he also, in this treatise, stressed the priesthood of all believers, that you as a believer have direct access to God through Christ, you do not have to go through an intermediate a priest. So those are very important factors to realize. Okay? His third treatise that here came out in November of 1520, and it's called The Freedom of the Christian. And it's probably considered one of his best. And he argued by scripture that through Christ one is free as he stands before God, living by faith through God's grace, that good works earn you nothing but, ar but arise naturally from the faith and desires to please God in all things, which ties in to his fourth point of the Reformation, the sign of a Christian, it is doing the best you can to whatever you're called to. So these uh, treatises very rapidly spread through 1520. And uh, others rallied support around Luther. But Pope Leo X in a papal bull in June of 1520 had excommunicated him in January of 1521. Okay. So very early in the next year, he's officially excommunicated. And Emperor Charles V declared him an outlaw. 
And so he's now, in 1520, excommunicated from the church, declared an outlaw, and uh, summoned to the Diet of Worms. Another funny name, but you know, Worms is actually just the name of the town. <laughs> so, in, in Germany. Uh, that was in April of 1521. So, he'd been excommunicated in January, um, and in 1521, he's called to this Diet of Worms. Uh, it is the second of the three significant diets. Aaron talked about the Diet of Augsburg last week in 1518. 1521, we're at the Diet of Worms. And in 1526, there will be the Diet of Spears. But uh, it's at the Diet of Worms, um, he wanted to defend his position by scripture alone and he was denied that and it's at this diet where his famous here I stand declaring my conscience is captive to the word of God supposedly was declared now in reality we don't really know if he ever said that you know how legends start uh, but many many uh, history books on the Reformation you read will, will print that as if it it's gospel that he absolutely said it. Uh, a true historian will tell you that it, it stealthily did, but he, he did say that he would only accept anything that was defensible by scripture, even the Roman church, if they could prove it by scripture, but they couldn't. Uh, now the emperor had uh, uh, remembered what his ancestor had done with John Hughes when he said he would have safe passage. His, there was others who were saying, you know, burn them, don't let them go. But uh, his ancestor had had, well, the former emperor back at the time of John Hughes had this uh, on his reputation. He didn't want it. So Charles V, let him go. But they were secretly plotting to grab him and kill him. So uh, what happened was the prince or elector of Saxony, remember what his name was? Freddie Frederick the Wise. Uh, he arranged that Mass men would would uh, grab Luther on the road and take him off to some sort of seclusion. So that saved his life. He he ended up in uh, the castle of Wartburg, uh, which was a very famous castle, a castle even at that time, and that's where he he got his name, Junker George or Knight George. And he spent the next 25 years there, uh, except for a short period of time where he came out to kind of clear some matters up. But that's where he did an awful lot of his writings. And uh, 
you know, the German Bible came out because of his seclusion there. Um, unfortunately, he suffered a lot of depression, as John Hughes had when he was confined for eight months waiting to his uh, uh, burning at the stake. But Luther was vehement in his writing. And that first year alone, he did 100, 183 new treatises. Now, these are not short documents. They're like whole, whole books. And uh, unfortunately, that's when he started his writings against the Jews. And they were atrocious. Martin Luther had a foul mouth, an ang bad temper. And because his health was, was uh, I'm not justifying it, but with his failing health, he got worse and worse as time went on. But as Pastor Aaron had said, they were men of their days, and they were in a culture uh, where things were much different. So while he's there, his word keeps spreading, and there's about 300 of these local uh, districts that Frederick the Wise was only uh, the uh, uh, prince of one. There's 300 others, and various monarch or uh, aristocrats would come to accept Luther's views, and others would retain Catholic views. So one district to the other, you could be what well, became known as Lutheran, and the other one you'd remain Roman Catholic, and they're all at odds with each other, and it ultimately was going to lead to civil war. But the Diet of Spears was called 1526. Uh, Despite the Pope's effort to enforce the uh, um, Diet of Worms that was to take Luther and convict him, uh, this, this was called to kind of resolve this um, denominational issue that it rose. So what came out of it initially was if you had an elector that was Lutheran, you could worship as a Lutheran. Now, if you happen to be a Catholic there, you could still worship. If you had an elector that was Roman Catholic, then Roman Catholicism would be the main means of worship. But if you're a Lutheran, you could worship there. Well, these diets didn't just suddenly end. It was reconvened in 1529, three years later. But this time, there wasn't a balance of who was on the council there, it was, it was heavily inclined to Roman Catholic um, leaders, and so they changed it. And if you were in a district that had a, a Lutheran elector, you could, you could uh, still worship as a Lutheran, and a Catholic could still worship as a Catholic. But if you were under a Catholic elector, you couldn't worship as a Luther, a Lutheran. You could only worship as a Catholic. You think they were happy about that, the Lutherans? No, they started a formal protest, and they became Protestant. And from that day on. Those that opposed the Catholic Church that had descended from have been known as Protestants. So it came out of the Diet of Spears in 1529. So Protestants 
became the official name of these new denominations in 1529. Now what's kind of interesting here, when you start seeing some other connections, Henry VIII of England was in power at this time. And I think most of you probably know some of the history of Henry VIII. You know, whether it's from the song, I'm Henry VIII, I am. <laughs> Dating with Herman's Hermits. Meryl and I actually heard him a couple years ago down in Florida. He's as good as he was back then. Anyway, you know, he's known for all the wives that he would have. And he, he left the Catholic Church because he, as we mentioned earlier, because he wouldn't authorize a divorce. And it was all political reasons. With, But uh, one thing that Henry VIII did was he burned Luther's writings. And he printed his own defense of the sacraments. And the Pope liked this. And so the Pope gave the sovereign ruler of England, the title, the Defender of the Faith. Every monarch in England since then has that title, Defender of the Faith. So, why was the Anglican Church known as the Defender of the Faith? Well, it was Martin Luther's fault, because of his writing. Yeah? Yes, I know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why he didn't really want to grant yeah. the eighth leave from the Catholic Church because he still for political reasons still wanted to have that connection to England. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never know how much of this stuff to bring up, but that's a very good point. And uh uh the the connections between some monarchies in Europe and England that were phenomenal back then. They still are today actually. Uh very interesting to study if you like that sort of thing. So, so we're not talking about the Reformation in England today, but I, I just thought it would be interesting to bring that out, that there's even a connection there. Okay. So, we went back and we come up here. Let's now talk about Holdrig Zwingli. Uh, or Erwig. He has different names, but. He, you notice, was born in 1484, January the 1st. Martin Luther had been born a mere seven weeks earlier in the fall of 1483. So they're the same age. But the difference is, he's in Germany, and Zwingli's in Switzerland. They both came to, through reading scripture, to realize that salvation was by faith alone. 
A lot of people think that Zwingli, Luther, Calvin came to this conclusion by reading uh, Augustine, who came to the same conclusion back in the 400s. But they didn't. They came through it from Scripture, just as uh, Augustine had. And Augustine's an interesting fellow because he's thought highly in some areas in Protestant circles. He's also thought highly in some areas of Roman Catholicism. And some blame Roman Catholicism the way it went with the popes and that because of him. And some say we have our salvation through God's grace by faith alone through Augustine. So, and, and he has some great works. Uh, would you ever go to seminary? Uh, I know I had a professor force me to read these things in Old English. Uh, he, he said, if you read enough of it, you'll become good at it. Uh, I don't know what enough is, but I never became good at it. <laughs> Fortunately, today, uh, whether you want to read Augustine or... John Calvin's Institutes, there are modern translations that are much easier to read, though it is heavy. We'll talk a little about it before the end of the night. Anyway, uh, in 1527, Luther began to write against Zwingli about his views on the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. It really became the most divisive issue among most Protestants in the 16th century. You know, I, I read that and look at it and say, this is the start of denominations. And here we are in 2017 with 35,000 denominations since then, in one form or another. And, uh, you know, there's only one Church of God, those that are true believers. Uh, or, what was it, 35, 45,000, I think they said. But uh, Zigley stressed, at least initially, that the Lord's Supper was a memorial meal in which the Christian renewed commitment to Christ. He was convicted that the doctrine of transubstantiation was the Roman Church's worst error on communion. And, uh, you know, his defense of that was that Christ's body had descended into heaven. Transubstantiation was idolatrous, he would say. The worship of the bread and wine. These are very strong views. Okay? And uh, for Luther, he, uh, the key error was the doctrine of the Eucharist, of the sacrifice of Christ, not his presence. And, you know, um, he took the words, literally, this is my body. And, you know, this taking certain things literal was another thing that caused other denominations. Um, because sometimes it's hard to really discern, okay? But um, for Luther, Zwingli's doctrine was too bound to the self-righteousness of Rome in not believing the words, this is my body. And Luther, for two, three years, sent all these letters off to Zwingli defending his view. Now, Zwingli had a lot of respect from Luther because of what he'd done in the Reformation. So he really didn't defend himself too much against Luther. Uh, but 
For Zwingli, his Luther's doctrine was too bound to the idolatry of Rome, and so this dispute went on. And, uh, you know, others wanted settlement. You know, we're all, we're all protesting Rome here. We, we don't want to be fighting amongst each other. So one of the most noted one was a guy named Prince Philip of Hesse. He wanted to forge an alliance between the Lutherans and the other Protestants in southern Germany and Switzerland. He wanted the united spreading of the Protestant movement. And so Luther was very skeptical, and, but he in, agreed to it that they would meet and insisted there'd be religious agreement if an alliance was to be made. So in October 1529, there was a meeting arranged between Luther and Melanchthon, representing the German side, and Zwingli and Martin Bucer, the Swiss side. And they agreed on a lot of things, justification by faith alone, the inerrancy of the scriptures, the authority of the scripture, uh, not the Pope, and so on. But it broke down over the Eucharist. And religious divisions have continued between Protestants in Germany and Switzerland ever since, despite their common cause of Catholic Church disagreement. So who was Zwingli? How many heard of him before last week? How many didn't hear of him before last week? Not surprised. He is known as the the third man of the Reformation or the forgotten reformer. Uh, and uh, he was in many ways more radical than Martin Luther. Um, he wasn't opposed to armed conflict, where Martin Luther would shy away from armed conflict. Um, he was born, as we mentioned, in uh, Switzerland less than two months before after Luther. And, you know, like Luther's Germany, Switzerland was a transitional time where the medieval system was decaying and Renaissance forces were really laying new grounds of renewal. But he wasn't from peasant stock. His father was actually the mayor of the town. So he was from a more wealthy one. And he really came to his evangelical understanding through the study and reflection of uh, the Greek New Testament. Erasmus had just come out with his infamous Greek New Testament, which has been used in translations ever since. And uh, uh, if you go to seminary and have to study Greek, you'll have to use it, I'm sure. So you got to look forward to, Jay? <laughs> Do you love that, Chris? <laughs> you ever use Erasmus? No? No, he didn't. Eh? Okay. Yeah, I guess it's only the geeks that like looking at that stuff. <laughs> okay. However, um, Zigley was much more, what's the word, uh, strict. Um, in implementing moral lifestyle, Christian lifestyle. And remember, the government's 
totally connected with the church back there, whether it's Protestant or Catholic. And uh, what happened was they set up fines, imprisonment, banishment, and even execution against some heresies, um, particularly what happened at that time is the Anabaptists started to rise out of Switzerland and Germany. And Anabaptist means rebaptizer. And they were the ones that could see nothing in Scripture to support infant baptism. Now, the reason infant baptism was retained by Luther, Zwingli, and even John Calvin was it was tied into the Old Testament circumcision. It was identifying with God. Well, it wasn't so much that they got rebaptized as adults that was a crime, it's that they would not baptize their children. That was a heresy in the church, because you were denying the eternal life of your children. So they would be declared uh, heretics. Some of them were actually, they like water so much, they drowned them. Others were burned at the stake. And most of them fled. And that's why the, the and it started with a man named Conrad Garble. And out of him, uh, people like Menno Simon, the Mennonites came out of that. Uh, Jacob Ammon, the uh, the Amish came out of that. They went to Pennsylvania. Same with the Pennsylvania Jewish. So they spread all over the world. Uh, the Hooterites also came out of the Anabaptists. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of that. I have a feeling actually Aaron's probably going to expand on that. Might be wrong, but you can ask him if he doesn't. So, um, so. This conflict, along with the Eucharist disagreement, what separated Lutheran churches from Ziegler's Reformed churches, became very highly volatile, and also the Catholics. So armed conflict came out of this. And uh, the so-called forest cantons escalated and attacked Zurich. Um, and in response, they did the same thing we do today. They had economic sanctions back at them. So um, war sort of broke out, and Zingli was killed in 1531 in a battle. And uh, he was... Uh, now, I'm not going to get into the gruesome details of what happened to his body, but it wasn't pretty. And so, what happens now? The leader in Switzerland is dead. But his followers, well, they didn't stop preaching the word. They didn't stop spreading it. And... Uh, A few years later, 
A man named John Calvin was confronted by one of his followers in Geneva only five years later and picked up where it was left off. And the rest is, they say, history. Now, when I say the word John Calvin, what comes to mind? Calvinism. What is Calvinism? Opposite of Arminianism. Opposite of Arminianism, correct. Okay. Okay, yeah, Tulip. What comes out is, uh, when you think of John Calvin, is uh, Tulip. The five points of Calvinism. The T, total depravity. Now, that ties back to original sin. That since Adam, we're all born in sin. Doesn't mean we're as depraved as we could be. It just means that we are unacceptable to God because of original sin. So we're depraved to the point that we can't go to heaven. And of course, there has to be some payment for that. And Christ repatriated our sins, as they say, by accepting him when he died on the cross. What is the you? Unconditional election. What that means that who will be saved is the sovereign will of God. And Calvin believed in dual predestination, predestination of salvation and predestination of condemnation, or it used to be called predestination of perdition. Uh, I'm going to read section 1037 in the Catholic uh, Catechism. It says, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willing turning away from God, a mortal sin, is necessary, and persistence in it until the end. So the Catholics believe in predestination? They... They certainly don't of predestination of uh, condemnation because they believe it's free will. Okay? That's contrary to the Calvinist or it's called Reformed view is. By the way, <laughs> Calvin didn't write the five points of Calvinism. Yeah, I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, the next one, the L, is limited atonement. The work of Christ alone is for the elect only. Okay. Now, I don't know if you ever heard the term hyper-Calvinist, but 
these things can always be out of balance. There's no need to evangelize because Christ is, you know, God elects who he will, and it doesn't matter what you do, he's going to call them anyhow. So you get those extremes. Of course, what about the Great Commission that we're ordered to go into all the world, preaching the gospel, every creature, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, of Matthew 28. Point is, we don't know who the elect are. And God gave us a job to do. But predestination and limited atonement are biblical truths. Everything Calvin wrote, by the way, he based on scripture. The eye is irresistible grace. If you're part of the elect, he's going to call you. You can't resist it. Okay? And uh, the P is preservation of the saints. It means um, you would never be lost once you're called. Perseverance of the saints, which means it basically eternal security. It doesn't mean you're not going to backslide. It doesn't mean you're going to have low parts as a, as a Christian. Now, here's the point. Calvin didn't write these five points, but they certainly uh, can be taken from the Institutes of Christian Religion, which was his greatest work. And uh, he, he had many, many more points than just these five. So why were these five points written? Well, there was a synod of Dort, or Dortrecht in Netherlands called in 1619 by the Dutch Reformed Church, which was a branch that came out of following Calvin's teachings. And it was called as an international synod to um, discuss the five points of Arminianism. Now, Jacobus Arminius, who lived from 1559-1609, in contrast to Calvinism, came up with five points, um, which are basically human free will, okay, which, of course, is opposed to uh, election, Conditional election, universal atonement, Christ died for everybody, resistible grace, and fall from grace. So these five points of Calvinism were actually written to present the counter view of Arminianism, which was actually adopted by John Wesley. Many Protestant churches follow the Arminian line. And the Reformed churches follow the Calvinistic line. Which one do you think this church follows? Yeah, we're, we're a Reformed church uh, in our theology. So the controversy had been over predestination. Now, ironically, uh, Calvin actually printed several versions of this. And the first one, he, he barely came out in 1537. He barely 
touched on predestination and only briefly. He had another writing the following year, the Confessions of Faith, and he didn't talk about predestination at all in it. It was only because the doctrine of grace was uh, under scrutiny that he expanded on it in later editions of his Institutes. So, so the term Calvinism, or Reformed faith, refers to the system of theology on the basis of Calvin's message. Okay. And uh, he ended up in, uh, in Geneva. And unlike Luther, he was of, uh, who was a peasant saw, Calvin was a member of the professional class. He was born in France. Now we're, we're talking about Switzerland, so what's he doing in Switzerland? Well, he had a humanistic and legal training and actually became a lawyer. Um, and... Uh, where Luther was physically strong, Calvin was ill most of his life. That's why he died at 54 at natural causes. Uh, Luther was living in uh, monarchical Germany, but in Switzerland it was more Republican. Uh, and he wanted representative of the government like there was in the secular world. Now, what is it about Switzerland that is even true today? It's in, yeah, they have different languages, but geo, geologically or geographically, it's in a mountainous area that's very difficult. Again, that's why it's never been invaded. And so the power of Rome, although it did exist, it didn't affect Switzerland the same. And um, Switzerland... Had, a, had an army back then, but they, were, they would sell them off as mercenaries to go and fight other wars. And uh, Zwigli was highly opposed to that. Is that why Switzerland has always kind of been like a stable, like morally neutral country? Not maybe morally, but like in like World War One and World War Two, they were never picked aside. They kind of were like the... Yeah. And even today, if you go to... Uh, Catholic to Rome, what do they call the guards there around the Pope? Swiss Guard. Swiss Guard. They're really Swiss missionaries, that's what they are. And they go back to ancient times. Anyway, uh, Luther emphasized preaching, but Calvin, the development of a former system of theology. And uh, they had different views on predestination, where Calvin believed in double predestination. Uh, Luther just believed in predestination of the saved, not the condemned. And not surprisingly, they had highly different views on Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. So Calvin's life really can be broken down in to two timelines from his birth up to 1536 
And uh, after that, in Geneva, where he did preaching, writing, and uh, organizing, he had received his law degree in 1532. And while he was studying, he got exposed to Protestant teachings. And they were from followers of Zwingli. And he came to adopt these. And, uh, and France, remember he's in France at this time. France didn't like Protestants. He ended up being exiled. So he went to um, Basel, which is a town located where Germany, France, and Switzerland, the borders all meet. That's where he wrote his first edition of his Institutes of Christian Religion. He was 26 years old, and it was 1536. Now, Catholic uh, writers, they had another name for this. Anybody know what it is? The Koran of the Heretics. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, anyway, one of Ziegler's followers was called Guillaume Farrell, and he had accepted the reform ideas about 1521, which was 10 years before Ziegler's death. And by 1532, he was expanding the Reformation into Geneva. And he was a real radical. He was known as a red-headed, hot-tempered, strong-voiced, prophetic individual, but he lacked organizational skills. But he was certainly in your face about Protestantism. So, so Calvin comes along in 1536. He's headed for Strasbourg, but there's a local war going around so he went that way, and he, I'm going to spend one night in Geneva. Well, Pharaoh realized this is the man. He has the organizational skill. And uh, he told Calvin he had to stay and help. Now, Calvin, he, he just wanted to study and be a scholar. He didn't want anything to do with this. So Pharaoh told him that if he didn't stay, he wouldn't be following the Lord's will. And if you do what you own, you have eternal ramifications for it. So Calvin stayed. And uh, he started organizing things. And so Pharaoh and Calvin became the teaching ministry of Geneva in 1536. By 1538, they were under so much persecution, especially from the French influence that they were they were kicked out of Geneva but the message continued in 1541 the reforming forces called Calvin back to Geneva and he was there for the rest of his life till 1564 now as far as contributions without a doubt his greatest contribution was his institutes and you know he deals with everything in here 
just looking at the cover, he's he's dealing with uh, God's word, God's spirits, God's providence, um, the Redeemer in Christ, the person of Jesus Christ and his work of redemption, the way of obtaining the grace of Christ, justification by faith, prayer, and most of it, I had to read this uh, in seminary, uh, and it wasn't the easy version. It was kind of like Augustine's. So. But um, most of it I tend to agree with, but some of you got to read it four or five times. What does he say? What does he say here? Uh, the two signs resemble each other, but also have difference. When the Lord told Abraham to observe circumcision, he promised that he would be a God to him and his seed. And then later on he says, The spiritual promise was given to the fathers in circumcision, similar to that given to us in baptism, since it illustrates the forgiveness of sins and the putting to death of the flesh. So what is he saying in simple terms? Yes, infant baptism is to be retained because it replaces circumcision of the Old Testament. So, uh, in fact, he had other writings uh, vehemently against the Anabaptists uh, for not recognizing the necessity of infant baptism. So, he also wrote commentaries on all the books that had the Bibles. You can buy a whole set for a hundred bucks. They're interesting readings. At least I find them that way. He he didn't have Second and Third John and Revelation in his commentaries. And when asked why, he said, "I don't understand them." <laughs> now, in music. Martin Luther was a musician. He wrote songs. He developed the hymnal. Uh, John Calvin kept music, but only the psalms. He set the psalms to music. Zwingli, he kicked all musical instruments out, part of his radical stuff. Uh, any images, anything, they were all thrown out on Zwingli. So uh, there's overreaction. There's Part of the problem why he got in fall trouble. And Calvin's letters, they went all over Europe and the British Isles, spreading his influence so much that it became a legend in his own time. We've heard that term with John Calvin it was absolutely true. Um, you know, he founded the University of Geneva in 1559. Uh, and the world would change from his teaching to America through future Calvinistic Puritans, uh, for example. And Geneva became a safe haven for those uh, being persecuted for following Reformed theology. There was 6,000 Protestant refugees flocked to Geneva while he was there from England, Scotland, France, and other countries. Example would be John Knox. He's one that sought refuge there. He adopted Calvin's theology. He went back to his native Scotland and he founded the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. In governments, uh, his type of governments is known as Presbyterianism. Do you know what kind of governments we have at uh, our church? 
Presbyterian. Now, we don't go around telling you because they think, oh, it's a Presbyterian church. No, it's not a Presbyterian church. We follow basically Reformed theology, but the government style is, is Presbyterian, which is based on as closely as Scripture as, as possible. Now, you know, we're all humans. We all make mistakes. So we've heard about Luther's negatives. We've heard about Zwingli's. Um, and Wycliffe's had some. So did John Calvin. Um, like Luther, he was influenced by the culture of his time. And he introduced what was known as the consistory. And it was composed of ministers and elders to supervise the theology and morals of the community, as well as administer punishment, which could lead to excommunication and a lot worse. In case of severe penalties, Calvin used the state, and it could be severe. And of course, the state and, and religion, or the church, were still totally entwined. You know, in these days, too, life was not worth very much. And I, I read that in several books, and I stopped thinking, well, is it worth much in our day and age? And I turned the news on and see all the atrocities going on. Depends where we live. In North America, we kind of don't really see what a lot of people are dealing with. So I don't think we've really come a long way. But anyway, um, Burning of the stake was not just acceptable to the Roman church or heretics, but also for Protestants. And 58 people were executed and 76 were exiled in 1546 alone under Calvin's watch. One of his most notorious cases was the case of uh, Michael Servetus. He was a Spanish physician and noted for great abilities but he denied the doctrine of the Trinity. He published a book against it, actually. He was executed by burning in 1553. And uh, that case is considered a blot on Calvin's reputation. you find it in most history books. But this part of the then medial system for those who opposed the church's doctrine wasn't invented by Calvin. Uh, it had been part of their culture before they became reformed. And anti-Trinitarian heretics were burned elsewhere. There was two in England. The Roman Inquisition had actually already set a price in Servius' head before the Protestants uh, got a hold of him. And uh, he, his burning wasn't approved just by, by Calvin. He was actually an expert witness on theology. There was uh, a council of 25 men that condemned him. And Calvin actually asked that he be beheaded rather than burnt, thinking it was more humane. Uh, I'm going to read something about Zigli here. This book was uh, printed in 1899. Those of you that know me know that I love to collect books, and there's a lot in the house. Uh, in fact, Marilyn's actually going around with a stubbed toe because uh, I had a bag of Bibles on the living room floor and she was cleaning the house and she stubbed her foot. The other day, been limping for three days. So. <laughs> okay.
Yeah, this is about Zwingli. It says, despite the burning of Protestant books, they rapidly multiplied. In 1522-23, in Wittenberg alone, were published 850 pamphlets. Hmm. I think I got the wrong page. Anyway, I was going to point out where Zwingli had overseen uh, the drowning of an Anabaptist for denying infant baptism. So, just to wrap things up here, out of Calvin, two-thirds of Germany, along with Scandinavia and England, embraced the Reformation by following Luther and his ecclesiastical patterns, where the head of state becomes the head of the church. But France, Scotland, northern Switzerland, the Netherlands, Hungary, Poland, and parts of Germany embraced Calvin's model, which keeps civil and churchly authorities structures distinct. What does that sound like? Separation of church and state. And it was highly part of reform doctrine. North America was influxed with reform denominations, and that's why it became trench in North America. Here in Canada, it's been slightly different because we have a great Catholic influence through Quebec and the French. And yet we still have the separation of church and state coming out in our thinking today. But try and tell a politician they accept the reform doctrine. Any questions? As Catherine pointed out, there's hundreds of other people we can talk about, but just to kind of see, there is a flow between Wycliffe and Hoos tied, tied into Martin Luther, and this came into North America, through the Zingli in Switzerland, to Calvin, and throughout the world. Just one second. And the separations of the Protestant denominations in two basic terms is the differences on the Eucharist and the differences on baptism. And it's been that way ever since. Yes, Ian. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you have to realize these, these things are progressive, and certainly there was a strong connection still between the church and the state. That fell more and more apart as time went by. But the implications were that the scriptures were our authority to follow in theological matters. The state didn't dictate those, but the state had authority to govern if they were following the moral values of the scripture. 
and that's where the breakdowns occur. Yes, Sam. Over the last uh, few nights, we've heard the term uh, predestination used very often. What exactly do you mean by predestination? Predestination means that God has ordained who will be saved. Does it, does it have anything to do with the direction or events of a person's life outside of salvation? No, I don't think so. I don't think so for a couple reasons. One, you don't know who God's going to call. You don't know how God's going to call. And thirdly, you don't know if you're going to be used to be part of that calling. We're mandated to spread the gospel. And my whole point in, in their church history, and Aaron's too, is when we talk about it, it's pointing out how these barriers have broken down what we should be really about, spreading the gospel. You know, God doesn't give us a list that, you know, Sam's on the elect and Glenn's not. And, you know, which may be true, only God knows. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of preachers that I'm sure are not going to heaven because it was just a game to them. Uh, I claim to be a Christian, and I believe I am. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, only God knows what's in a man's heart and a woman's heart. So it's just, you know, the scriptures talk about predestination. It talks about free will. It's, a, it's an understanding that's really beyond us. You know. And they, they're great for, you know, you get in a seminary course, they're great issues of discussion. I remember taking an ethics course, and the question was, is there such a thing as a, as a moral war? Ziegler would say there was. Martin Luther would probably say there wasn't. Okay. In that class, I said there was. It was right after uh, Desert Storm. And... Uh, all the young ones in the class said, no, there's no such thing. Well, they'd never been exposed to war. You know, so sometimes our culture really influences how we think on these things. Yeah? So what is uh, single predestination and double predestination? Single predestination is means there's predestination for the elect, but there's not for uh, damnation or uh, who's going to hell. Double predestination means God God has chosen who's going to hell as well as who the, who they left are. So, so somebody who believes in single predestination, what do they believe? They would the that by their own free will, they denied Christ and end up going to hell. Yeah. So how do we know who who's called? And you know, you know I. I've been in huge theological debates on this, and they're interesting, but in one way they're a waste of time. You know, we're about serving God and uh, realizing, thanking Him for the salvation we have, and uh, you know, thankful that we're part of the elect. And uh, if you you're not part of the elect, then come and talk to me or Aaron or any of the other elders and. We'll explain that to you. We'll elect you. <laughs> yeah, another, another question there? Is there such a thing as a Protestant monastic order? And is there such a thing as a, like a Protestant version of the rule of St. Benedict? That's sort of a yes and no. 
there are in denominations that have certain prescribed orders. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you can almost say it in our church. We have elders, we have deacons, but it, it's in 45,000 denominations, there's bound to have been some. Yeah. Some of them, I mean, they, they look at the Old Testament and say, oh, uh, uh, oh, it's okay to have seven or eight wives. We just, they did. And, you know, a lot, a lot of the things are justified by Scripture, but isolated Scripture. So one of the biggest problems that the Anabaptists had was taking everything literal in the Bible and causing the problem. The funny thing is, a bunch of those things that they considered literal are literal. They're rejected by the other Protestants, so. So, I mean, it's endless what you can study on this, but this course is to give you some understanding of how we got to where we are today. Okay, have a great week, everybody.